Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Pete Buttigieg, and this is The Deciding Decade. Politically, people running for office are often advised to speak only about the middle class, not to use the words poor or poverty. There's always a heavy focus on making the country work for the middle class, to grow the middle class, which of course is important and true. But the stark reality is there are 140 million poor and low-income people in this country. And if we don't figure out how to mobilize around poverty, to name it, expose the truth of it, and fix it, we won't be able to break it. My guest today is someone who has been working on this moral cause for a long time and is truly one of the most extraordinary servants of the people that I've ever met. Reverend Dr. William Barber II has spearheaded some of the most influential moral movements in our time. Since he was young, he's held positions of community leadership, was president of his local NAACP Youth Council at age 15, and is now on their national board of directors. He launched the political fusion organization, Repairers of the Breach, created the ascendant, impactful movement called the Poor People's Campaign in the tradition of Dr. King. And he received the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grant 
for his work on furthering the moral movement against inequality. I have personally found his words and stands inspiring. His integrity and faith have moved him to insist that political systems and political figures, including me, actually listen to the voices of the poor and the dispossessed. He truly lives the call to stand for the least among us. Reverend, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you so much, Mayor Pete, and thank you for your campaign, your tenacity. You were among the first on a national debate platform of any party to acknowledge the work of the Poor People's Campaign and to actually say that if we were going to have debates in this country about where we are, where we're going, we had to put the issue of poverty up front and center. Well, I think one of the most powerful things that you've done is open America's eyes on just how many people fall into that category of poverty or low wealth, uh, nearly half of the country. And in politics are taught to talk always about the middle class and never about the poor, although that line has become thinner and thinner over time. And it's had me thinking of the fact that there's no scripture that says, as you've done unto the middle class, so you've done unto me. I wonder in your experience mobilizing and empowering people to tell their own stories, what you think is giving this movement the ability to reach more people than it has in the past? Why is there more attention to poverty than there had been? And uh, and how much further do we have to go before you would be able to say that the system is really able to hear those who are crying out in this way? My co-chair, Reverend Dr. Liz Dale Harris, And our team decided that, first of all, you have to believe in the agency of poor and low-wealth people, number one. Number two, you have to do your homework. To be quite honest, Mayor P., I didn't realize it was as bad when we started because I'd always heard 39 million. That's what you hear, 40 million. But what we found out is that people were using a way of calculating that that's 55 years old and wasn't sufficient at the time. When we saw this number, 140 million, we all fell back in our seats and said, what in the world? And because most of this is invisible, you know, people don't realize it. 61% of African-Americans are poor and low wealth. That's 26 million people. Mm. 30-some percent of white people are poor and low wealth, but that's 66 million people. Poverty has a 41% more of an impact on black people from a percentage perspective. But from a actual raw numbers perspective, there's 40 million more poor and lower white people than there are black. And the lie that has been used by those who don't want us to deal with poverty uh, has often been that it was a marginal issue, mm-hmm. that it did not cut to the heart and soul and center of our democracy. And then we, we had to say there's an interlockingness between systemic racism and by systemic racism, I mean all forms of racism, not just toward black people, but and not just one form, voter suppression, police violence, mass incarceration, resegregation of public schools, mistreatment of our Latino brothers and sisters, immigrants, continuing mistreatment of our indigenous community. But you had to connect that to systemic poverty and then connect the systemic poverty to denial of health care and ecological uh, devastation. And then that has to be connected to a serious analysis of the war economy what Eisenhower called the uh, military-industrial complex. And then you had to connect that to the theology, the false theology. And so you ask me, what helped us mobilize truth? And then we, we went to communities. We didn't start from the top, like a bunch of organizations saying, we're going to speak on behalf of the poor. Bringing truth, bringing an analysis, 
and showing people why they need to be connected. And because of that, Mayor, we've had tremendous mobilization. We had the mass poor people's assembly on our march on Washington. We were going to be on Pennsylvania Avenue, June 20, 2020. That didn't happen. We were going to say, okay, we'll wait. It was poor and low. Well, people said, no, you're not. Mm. No, you're not going to wait. We're going to go digital. Some of them said, we can't wait because we might die. 700 people are dying a day from poverty. Let me ask you about that experience because uh, so much of the tradition of these demonstrations is, of course, about gathering people together physically. And I wonder, as a veteran of traditional political organizing, or I should say as a veteran of traditional moral organizing, what lessons have you learned or what conclusions have you drawn about what it will be like in the future as we have both digital and physical gatherings continuing to do this kind of organizing and bear this kind of witness? It's another tool. It doesn't mean we don't do the other. We're clearly going to do the physical. There's a place for it. But as Bayard Rustin told Dr. King, sometimes in the movement, you have to learn how to do jazz. Mm. <laughs> and you know what jazz is? You got to learn how <laughs> you to improvise. They got to improvise. That's, right. That's exactly right. And in the improvision, you learn. You actually create something unique. And so we thought if we had 150,000 people to tune in on June 20th, that would be great. We had 2.7 million people. Wow. We had 400,000 people to take action that day and send the, the moral platform for the healing of the nation, Jubilee Justice Poverty Platform. 400,000 people sent it to governors and all of the legislators in Congress. We had 40,000 people just take their picture to say, look, we're here. And it's still growing. So one of the things... We've done, we have something called MPOLIS, Moral Political Organizing Leadership Institute and Summit. And all over the country, we have trained clergy, advocates, and poor and low people in the same room. We train them on history. We train them on economics. But what we've learned is that we can now use this tool in powerful ways. And it actually worked better for us because we wanted people to actually see and hear the voices of poor and low-impacted people. And what was powerful is you'd say, have a, a Mayor Pete come on or a Danny Glover. And the Danny Glover would say, did you know? And they would give the statistics. And then they say, but those are just numbers. Now let's hear from the people who make up those numbers. And people would come on and tell their story. And then a person impacted would say, this is why we demand and would lay out the demands. And there's so much power in that. I remember when I came to visit uh, in Goldsboro, uh, one of the speakers at the event that you gathered together had lost her son and was able to show that her son would probably be alive today if Medicaid had been expanded exactly. in her community to serve her community. And you know, I've been talking about Medicaid for years, and it was different to be in this conversation with her, bearing this kind of witness and this pain that was caused by a policy that often gets talked about in these dry terms or in terms of these statistics? Well, you know, Mayor, that's one of the critiques I've had with the political world. You know, you can go back years. I mean, just way past Trump. And we had these debates. Poverty was never at the center. But one of the things I'm so, I've pushed, you know, politicians on it, we pushed them on, is why do you talk about health care and not have people standing around you who need it? <laughs> you know, say, for instance, in the South, all of these the southern states denied the Affordable Care Act, you know, the Obamacare. Turned down the Medicaid expansion. Turned down Medicaid expansion. I've asked myself time and time again, why is it that Democrats in the South have not had press conferences 
with the people that are affected by that. In my state, 500,000 people, 346,000 white, 150 some thousand black, 30,000 people formally connected to the military. Why not have press conferences and let them talk? Mm. You know, in the midst of COVID, why not have virtual press conferences with impacted people who are suffering, who are dying, who are scared to go to the hospital because if they do, they might end up with a bill for $75,000 if they get treated for COVID and they can't, right. you know, make, it's two things I think. We have to put a face on it and we have to expose what I call the death measurement. What moved us about George Floyd? Everybody talked who did this and who's doing this and who's supposed Let me tell you, the hero of that was that little girl that held that camera the whole time. And she put a face on it and a voice on it. That's what moved people. And so what happened, people got to hear him say, I can't breathe. But then hit the image of what was being done to him struck a chord because so many people working in places without the protective equipment feel like I can't breathe. Mm. His words became shorthand. We have to take this away from just being numbers to being about people. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., that's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. 
I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. You also, you came up as a leader in the NAACP, speaking out for justice for Black Americans. Your movement of fusion politics is multiracial, multidenominational. But what is the best way to think about this parallel set of facts? That on one hand, poverty is something that unites so many low-income, low-wealth white people, Black people, and people of other ethnicities and races. And on the other hand, being poor and Black is not the same thing as being poor and white. And these racial experiences really are different. How can you practice fusion on the one hand and on the other not get caught up in the ideology of color blindness, which I think we've learned is an illusion that is a mistake? No, you can't use that. And that's why you have to put people in the room where they're telling the same stories. And the interaction will come, the intersection will come. First of all, we've always had to do that. It was the abolition movement was diverse. And Frederick Douglass could talk about it from the perspective of being a slave. In the civil rights movement, you had the second reconstruction, if you will, fusion, black and white. So Rabbi Heschel and Dr. King could come together. But even Dr. King took the lead as a black person talking about how what was happening to black people was also hurting white people. Right. Mm. It's kind of like the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And you just don't <laughs> leave it off the table. Now, I'm going to say something to be a little controversial. In some ways, what he said in Montgomery is more powerful than his closing at the March on Washington. I have a dream was a closing. He did it in Rocky Mount, Detroit, Washington. A black, in the black preaching, it's like a closing. It's lifting people. I have a dream was him saying, we don't have to stay in this nightmare. There's a way out. And it's a powerful prophetic anthem of belief in the midst of disbelief and despair. But at the end of the Selma to Montgomery march, when he's pushing Johnson to do something he doesn't want to do, remember, they did not want to take up the Voting Rights Act. The people forced it in a non-election year. Most of the people that had been elected had not gotten elected to pass a Voting Rights Act. But this moral fusion movement of black and white and brown and gay and straight and young and old and all came together. They made it to Mount Vernon. Dr. King on those steps in his speech starts talking about the first reconstruction. He starts talking about what was happening when black and white people came together in the South to build a new political base and how it was torn apart. Because the wealthy, the aristocracy, he calls them, saw the power of black and white poor people coming together. And he says, when poor whites can't eat, the racists give them the psychological bird of racism. Mm. And he, he lays out how every time in history, 
there is the possibility of poor blacks and poor whites coming together to form a political base that could change the country and change it politically, the aristocracy sows division. He says that if division is not just about dislike on color, it's about power and it's about economics. All of this division we see and all of this money being spent to divide is not just the ignorance of one person. It is a strategy called the Southern strategy that was implemented in the 60s. And when Kevin Phillips implemented it and gave it to Richard Nixon and everybody following him, you know, Trump is just the latest one to use it. He's not Mm -hmm. the first one to use it. And he uses it in such overt ways. You're not supposed to tell everybody what you're doing. That's his food. <laughs> See, the Southern strategy was used by Reagan, used by Nixon. Right. Didn't somebody say that Trump said the quiet part out loud? Look, exactly. See, when Wallace ran for the presidency, the people on that side of the aisle saw his arguments were powerful. And his arguments could guarantee the South. And that could guarantee you 170 electoral votes out of a race to 270. But he was too loud, too abrasive. So Nixon said, we have to find a way to do what Wallace is doing, but not sound like him. And so Lee Atwater said, the way you do that is you talk about economics and school and busing and so forth. So right. But my point is, Code words. Right, Dr. King saw the other side. Dr. King said, if they're paying this much money and fighting this hard, we need to look at the demographics. And when Dr. King looked at the demographic, he saw that there was this possibility for poor white people to come together and dealing with race and poverty connected was the linkage. Now, another thing about Dr. King is that he was quite impatient with moderate liberals and progressives. Letter from Birmingham Jail is largely about this impatience. Uh, How's your patience right now? You you see a political system with uh, Republicans, Democrats, you've pressed on that system in many ways. What what level of of patience or impatience do you think is called for in a moment like this? Well, I think anybody, the prophets in the Bible were always impatient. So there has to be a certain impatience in your soul and in your mind and in your body when it comes to how people are just disregarded, especially when you understand that it doesn't have to be that way. See, how long are we going to be comfortable with other people's death? You have uh, never hesitated to speak to the policy implications of the moral teachings of faith as you understand it. And one of the things that really surprised me in the course of campaigning for president was how much appetite there was, on, mm. uh, certainly among progressives, for more of a conversation about faith. And I always tried to be very careful to make clear that I believed as a, as a political figure that everything I did and said had to be for people of, of every religion and of no religion, but that we also shouldn't be shy to talk about the policy implications of our moral choices and, and the moral implications of our policy emergencies. And uh, yet, I think there was an assumption or an expectation among a lot of the people that I talked to that it was only in the political right (laughs) that you would see a lot of conversations about how faith and politics intersect. I wonder if if you agree with that, first of all, and and if so, why would it be that maybe more the left side of the aisle or the spectrum is more reluctant or allergic to talk about the role and interaction of faith and policy than than what we've seen, especially on the cultural right throughout my lifetime? Yeah, well, I I push back a little bit with you Mm -hmm. because I don't use that language. And I think we have to walk, get away from it because it was language that was deliberately put in our 
social thesaurus to create false interpretations that in language of left and right and to be quite honest when you actually look at orthodox theology there is no language of that in any of our holy books my grandmother used to say about being a christian it's like being pregnant you are you aren't (laughs) and she said and you don't get to just choose you have to follow what jesus said it's the politics of god Mm. so you don't get to say you are somehow a right christian you know a left christian those terms are not really there and then secondly we have to know the history. I mean, in order to commit genocide against the people who are already here, the native people, somebody had come up with the theology to consecrate that. In order to enslave people, somebody had come up with a theology that would allow that to happen. Racism is not just about name calling. It is about power. Systemic racism is about power and policy. It never is just about name calling. The name calling comes to cover up the policies. So what happens is you have a group over here calling names and burning crosses, but there's a group underneath that that's enforcing policy and changing policy. Mm. A much bigger group, probably. Right. And they can often say, we're not with that group, right? That mm. group over there. <laughs> so, but, but in order to do this, in order to have this sla- capitalism rooted on slavery, you had to have these four things, evil economics. And that is when the end justifies the means. And so if the end is prosperity and wealth, it doesn't matter how you get it. The second thing we had to have was sick sociology. And sick sociology says that something is wrong with two people being in the same place as equal simply based on color. And then you had to have bad biology. And bad biology is what Cornel West talks about in one of his early books, Prophesied Deliverance, where a French scientist actually came up with this notion that you could determine brain size by skin color. Mm. And then the last thing you have to have is a heretical ontology. And heretical ontology is that God meant it to be this way. And so we have to remember that the church split in America before there was a civil war in the church before there was a civil war in the nation, almost every major denomination had split in America by 1840 over the issue of slavery. And there was an argument one time, do you baptize the slave? Yes, you baptize them because it makes them better slaves. Then there was an argument, no, you can't baptize them because that's honoring their humanity. I mean, and, and you can find this stuff not in some backwoods building, but in the stacks of the libraries of Harvard right. and Yale and Duke. I mean, people really spent time with Mayor Pete messing us up. There was a whole system behind it. And it worked. And And there's something parallel about this junk science and about the theology, right? And that both take an an order that was created by human beings. They create this social and political, or they look at this political uh, order, and then they create this immutable excuse for it, and whether it's the will of God or the laws of science or both of them taken together as, as a way to make it sound like these things that were created by people. And, and that means surely could be torn down by people, right? But makes it look as though they're just part of the order of the universe. Exactly. And one of the things that happened to me in seminary that has made me so passionate around this issue, I'm so intense about being against any form of codified racism or codified sexism, or codified homophobia, because one of our fathers in the ministry, Dr. Bill Turner, he assigned us to preach pro and anti-slavery sermons, to go into stacks at Duke and find them. Hmm. 
But the black folk had to preach the pro-slave sermon. And we almost had a mutiny until he explained. He said, I want you to understand how intentional this was. Mm -hmm. I want you to understand the argument so you can unpack the arguments that the foundations of slavery and the rationales still exist in our political arena. And you need to be able to hear it when you don't hear it. In other words, you need to be able to hear it when it's not said as overtly and as outright as it was said 120, 200 years ago. But you need to know it because it has not gone away. So after we got over our initial you know, resistance, we put ourselves into I did. I had a sermon and I put myself into it. And when I was preaching that sermon, you know, I said, my God, if I didn't know better, I'd be convinced. So this was really sophisticated work when yes, you propping up these ideologies. Yes, sir. And yeah. then the other thing that happened is the white kids in the room were all crying. What they told me afterwards was we could imagine people that look like us preaching this. And, and then they said, but I've heard that. Mm. So they recognize in it the DNA of things that are with us right now, right? Exactly. They recognized it in conversations that they heard. But also many black folk said that's why some of our people got convinced. You know, everybody mm -hmm. didn't fight. Dr. King was put out of his own denomination. People forget that. For being too radical. Yeah, for being, they told him to wait. Why is it? Because they too had been affected by this systematic and intentional and sophisticated form of presenting racism as the way of God. You know, but also, we need to look that same kind of thinking, not to the same effect, was done to poor white men who didn't have land because they were left out. There was theological thinking around keeping women and saying they weren't, shouldn't be voting, the dismissing of Native people. And see, one thing we got to understand is when you see someone like Trump, Trump is just an iconography of a too often repeated American reality, as Neil Painter likes to say from Princeton. But the world is changing. The demographics are changing. And a lot of people are going through this traumatic experience is that they haven't come to terms with having been lied to all of their life. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. So let's let's fast forward a little bit. Let's imagine there's people in in office, in legislature, in the Congress, in the White House, who are more friendly to policies that tackle systemic racism to dismantle some of these patterns of, of generational poverty. But we know it's not just going to be as simple as electing the right people and everything gets better, right? Where, where does the movement? And where does the energy have to go if Trump is part of the the history books now, but we still have this glaring need right in front of us that obviously built up over the years, no matter who was in power and has gone through these these reversals, these fits and starts, these improvements and setbacks? What, what will it take for a third reconstruction to happen where it would actually be different this time? We need to tell the truth. We need to have a major I believe, presentation to really lay out the state of America and why we can't continue like this if America is going to be. And it doesn't need to be about Democrat or Republican or left or right. It needs to be about how can we say we are a nation that establishes justice, provides for the common defense, promotes the general welfare, ensures domestic tranquility, and believes in equal protection under the law with probably what will be 50% of our people in poverty because of COVID. So I think we don't need Republican life. This is an FDR moment. Mm. This is an Abraham Lincoln moment. This is our Edmund Pettus Bridge moment. This is our 1920 women's suffrage moment. And whoever is leading the country needs to see it and help the country understand that because we only go forward together. And we have to refuse to take one step back. And lastly, we have to lift up the American people. This is a moment that I think an American president and senators need to do what Dr. King did at the March on Washington. I'm not talking about his speech. I'm talking about the picture. Go look at that picture at the March on Washington and notice all the people standing around Dr. King. It's white people up there, black people up there, even an officer of the law up there. And it sends this picture that this is about all of us, that racism is not just against black people, it's against democracy, poverty, hits all of us and destroys the essence of who we are called to be as a democracy. 
And I think a president would do well to put people around and have a big thing with people who are impacted and let them say, we are America and we're not going to accept this anymore. And so if you fight me over health care, you fight. This is who you're fighting. You know, the, the thing I find so beautiful in that image is that it takes very seriously the idea of the president's relationship to the country. We, we pack so much into that word of, right? The president of the United States. But to really be of, I mean, what's in that preposition that does so much work? And if it means that the president is somebody who calls forth the entire country or elevates the voices from within the country, it could be, it could be the most powerful thing. We do it in war. If we do it to kill, why don't we do it to live? Mm -hmm. We need to take seriously this most powerful word, we, we the people. And we need to send a warning to the nation of what happens if we don't fix these things, but then offer the hope. Now, notice I didn't say optimism because optimism, I don't have a lot of that power, but hope, theologically, hope goes through despair, not around it, nor does it deny. Mm. You have to hew out of the mountain of despair, a stone of hope. It does not dismiss the despair. It actually puts it all out there. You have to be honest about the problem. It helps us unhook ourselves from the sense of apathy and what cannot be and, and what's not possible. We keep talking about compromises, but what about courage? There has to be something that you don't compromise on. And I look at the fact that everything we hold dear today, if you use it like a progressive, a hundred years ago, somebody said it was impossible. But there always had to be a remnant that wouldn't accept that. Now, one of the things I read it every week, I read my Bible, you know, I listen to jazz music. <laughs> I listen to some hip hop sometimes because sometimes the brothers in the street are more prophetic than, than some other folk. But I also every week read that part of the Declaration of Independence where it says, after a long train of abuses. The people have the right to alter the government. In fact, the Declaration of Independence almost suggests that it's unpatriotic to have a long train of abuses. Racism qualifies as a long, systemic policy driven racism as a long train of abuse. I think poverty mm -hmm. <laughs> has a long train of abuses. I think not paying people a living wage I mean, it took black folk 400 years to get to $7.25. We can't wait another 400 to get 15 because we started out at zero. So it's been a long train of abuses. There's some things we have one chance to shift now. And people are going to be so looking for the shift, they're not going to accept not addressing them. And if we don't address it, we might lose this country. And what I mean by that is, when people protest in a country, that means they still love it enough because they still believe change is possible. That's right. What you don't want people to do is to give up on protests and just not care because, as my grandmother used to say, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. It strikes me that there's an act of trust that's embedded in the act of protest, not necessarily a trust that an institution will do a right thing on its own, but a, a trust that it's somehow possible to make a change. Yeah. And the first part of protest is for your own sanity. Mm. It's because if somebody steps on your toe and you lose the ability to say, ow, or if you, if you put your hand on a hot stove and you don't move it and you go to the doctor, they will check your whole nervous system because they say something's wrong with you. And so my hope is in the midst of all of this pain, it will produce that power that sometimes comes in the midst of pain. And that is the power of a remnant coming together 
to say, not on our watch. It doesn't have to be like this. And we are not going to die needlessly. Maybe the time has come for us to take seriously every breath we have and decide that we no longer have any breath to waste on foolishness, that every breath we have needs to be used for the furtherance of love and truth and justice and humanity. There was so much in that conversation that I know I'll be reflecting on. He spoke frequently about the importance of speaking truth to power, about telling and hearing the truth. Reverend Barber lays out the truth about poverty in this nation, about systemic racism, about religious and political activism and politics generally. This kind of moral call is something that I believe will resonate more and more in the decade ahead. And if we can collectively say, not on our watch, to those who won't speak the truth, those who are content with morally shocking realities in our country, and if we can say that to ourselves when we're getting too comfortable, then we might live to see this country become a much better place for all. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.